he wrote another book called A Trip into the Supernatural after he wrote that book. And Roger Morneau tells his testimony of how he came out of spiritualism and became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. He tells some harrowing accounts of some of the experiences that he had, and in one of his stories, he talks about how he was giving a Bible study after he became a Christian to another individual, and he says that in that moment that the curtain was lifted between the visible and the invisible, and while he was giving the Bible study to this certain gentleman, he said that behind the man that was receiving the Bible study, he saw another being that was standing behind him. This was not a human being, a supernatural being. And it seemed that as Roger would relay the contents of the Holy Scripture, that this supernatural being would try to influence and counteract the Bible study that was taking place. At a certain moment, Roger says that the being and him had eye contact, and the supernatural being was startled, recognizing that he was now visible to Roger. After a moment, he kind of shrugged it off and continued to try to influence the Bible study. The Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, amen, but against principalities, against powers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And there is, believe it or not, an invisible reality around us that we cannot see. There are evil angels, there are righteous angels that are all around us, and I think that if all of us were able to see the great controversy being played out right before our very eyes, it would drive us to our knees. Today we are continuing in our series of messages called The Great Controversy, and in our scripture reading today, we are given a glimpse for a brief moment in which The curtain between the visible and the invisible is taken back, and you're able to see a conversation between Satan and God. This is the only place, I believe, in the Holy Scriptures where we're able to see this type of dialogue between God and Satan that is not on planet Earth. So, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. And we want to pick up, as this dialogue begins, in another place, in another time. Genesis, not Genesis, but the book of Job was written before the book of Genesis. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Scholars believe that this was a kind of United Nations meeting in the universe. The sons of God are representatives from these other places in the far reaches of God's creation, and Satan, notice, comes as a representative of planet Earth. Adam was the original representative, but after the fall, he forfeited that title, and even in the New Testament, you'll notice that Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. He assumed that title. And in verse 7, you have 
almost kind of a greeting, an initial part. Some niceties are exchanged, as it were, in verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. An interesting dialogue. You're able to see some of the nuances in the great controversy as you study these passages. And I want to invite you at this time to take out your study guide, which is in your bulletin. And if you don't have one, raise your hand. Daniel Jean-Francois is in the back, and we'll get you a study guide. This is a brief outline of today's presentation. It's a study guide, and I want to begin with asking some elementary questions about this dialogue, which we have just read. Who were present at this special meeting before God. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God were, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So there are three parties that are present at this meeting. Three constituents, as it were, the Lord, Satan, and the sons of God. And you will notice that the person on trial in this dialogue is not Job. It's actually God. As you look at some of the implications and some of the nuances of Satan's argument, the person that is really being grilled is God, and we'll get into that a little bit later. So this dialogue is taking place between God and Satan, and the universe is watching this dialogue. The book of Corinthians tells us that we are made a spectacle before men and angels. So the universe is watching this exchange between God and Satan before the sons of God is this interesting and fascinating dialogue. What did God point out in Job's life? Here we get to the crux of a central issue in the great controversy. God immediately, after exchanging some of the niceties, after saying, hey, where have you come from? And then he says, from going to and fro on the planet. Job is immediately brought up by God. He says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. And you can fill out your study guide. I wanted to highlight this word, blameless. He's blameless. I looked up the word blameless in a thesaurus, and it has some things like irreproachable, impeccable, righteous. So there's something about Job's life, his blameless life, that validates or vindicates God's side. Do you see that, yes or no? He immediately brings up Job's life. He says, look, he lives a blameless life 
an upright life by the grace of God, one who fears God and shuns evil. Moving on very quickly to our next question. Look at Satan's response. What did Satan claim was Job's motive in faithfulness? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and have increased in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The implication is the only reason why Job, or anyone for that matter, would serve you is not because of who you are, but because of the benefits that you bring. He's living a posh and luxurious life. And Job is attacked by Satan. The insinuation given by Satan is that, look, if you take away all of the accoutrements, all of the luxuries, all of the benefits, then Job will have no reason to serve you. Because God's character is not such that is worth serving That is the assumption in this question. And so we have the story unfold. What did God allow Satan to do? There it is. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not lay a hand on this person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Job, needless to say, is oblivious to this conversation. He has no idea that this, quote, deal has been struck. And the next few verses are astonishing in the rapid succession of loss that Job undertakes. Seven verses. And you'll notice a phrase that is repeated over and over again. And I have the words on the screen because... I looked it up in the New Living Translation. Now, it's not my favorite translation, but sometimes some of these modern translations give us a little bit more of a bite to them. And this was no exception. The New Living Translation, I have it on the screen here. I want to read to you what happens in verse 13 as Satan unleashes his fury upon this poor, unsuspecting individual named Job after this conversation. I have the words on the screen. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with the news. Your oxen were plowing with the dachshund, with the dachshund, with the donkeys. It's been a short night, friends. Have mercy. All right. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. One servant is freed or allowed to live to bear this news to Job. Then it gets worse while he's still speaking. So as this individual is finishing his sentence of this tragic loss, Another messenger arrives with the news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Notice that they always attribute it to God. Even the insurance companies. It's an act of God. All right, the next verse. While he's still speaking, repetition, 
a third messenger arrived with the news. Three bands of Chaldeans, raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And you'll guess, you'll never guess what the next phrase is. All right. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with the news. And this is the worst news of all. He's economically bankrupt, which he probably could live with and recover. But notice the next words. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Parents, one can only imagine the devastation that Job is feeling in a few moments. The time that it took me to read this is the time that Job found out the devastating news, economic bankruptcy, and he's lost every one of his precious children. Job stood up, tore his robe in grief, then shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. And these last few words are mind-blowing. Praise the name of the Lord. As we go back to our study guide, how does the chapter conclude? And here is the punchline. Here's the punchline of chapter 1, verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. This is the punchline, that in this argument that started in heaven... Satan makes the claim that if you strip away all of Job's possessions, he will curse God and die. In other words, he will sin. But in all this, Job remained faithful to God. Job vindicated God by his faithfulness. And when we go to the biblical definition of sin, I have this in your study guide. What is the biblical definition of sin? You remember Job did not sin. And here is the Bible giving us the definition of sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. And you remember last week, the whole great controversy centered on the law of God. Satan claimed that the law of God could not be kept. And you can see that the argument and the great controversy that began in heaven has been continued here on earth, except it has to do with you and me. And somehow... In the scheme of this, when you and I are faithful to God, by the grace of God, allow God to write His law within our hearts, we validate God's side. Can you say amen? This is what the the book of Job is implying. And here's a quote from 
Our study guide last week, I have it this week as well, from the beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this, that he entered upon his rebellion against the Creator, and though he was cast out of heaven, he continued the same warfare upon the earth. Moving on, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. So, we see that the strong lesson in the book of Job, when Job, by the grace of God, keeps the law, he vindicates before the universe that God's law can be obeyed. That is the central issue in Job chapter 1, and I will add Job chapter 2. Now, if you get a chance One Saturday afternoon, I want to encourage you to read through the book of Job because it's fascinating. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 begin with this unveiling, or you're able to see behind the curtain, and then Job loses everything. And in the next chapter, which we will not have the opportunity due to time to go into, but I want to encourage you to read it. He receives boils all over his body because Satan says, look, you haven't allowed me to touch him. So he receives boils all over his body, and still he does not sin. And the rest of the book of Job is beautiful Hebrew poetry. But it is existentially troubling. Because if I were to summarize the next 30 plus chapters in the book of Job, you know what it is? Why? 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 I, that's a good summary of the rest of the... Job is like, why, why, why? And three of his friends who are not his friends come and sit before him and say, you know what? The reason why is because you have sinned. That was the common theology of the day. So why, 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 why? And you can't study this without asking about inexplicable suffering because to Job, this poor guy, I mean, he's down on earth minding his own business, and suddenly there's a conversation in heaven about the law of God, and he becomes the prime target of total loss, total bankruptcy, and loses all his children. And when you look at this theme of the great controversy, it seems almost callous which we will touch on a little bit next week. I mean, God is sitting up there on his throne, and he says, oh, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan says, it's not really what you think. And then God says, okay, go for it. I'm going to prove that I'm right. And so this whole experience of suffering is encapsulated in the book of Job, and no other book of the Bible asks more fundamentally, the question of theodicy, the question of how could God allow it? This is a question in the book of Job, and the next 30 plus chapters goes on and on. Why? 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 It's one thing that Job vindicates God before the universe. Now, that's nice, but poor guy. At what personal cost? Dostoevsky, who I tried to read, by the way, it's like 900 pages of one of his books, and got through first few, and he's, he's deep, way too deep for me. But here's a quote. He asks 
this question, if all must suffer to pay for the eternal harmony, what have the children to do with it? Tell me, please. What about the children? What am I to do about them? He's asking, look, uh, I can understand adults suffering for their own decisions. Many times we suffer because we bring calamity upon ourselves. But he's asking, look, what about the children? How can you explain God not intervening when it comes to innocent little babies that are suffering and slaughtered on a weekly, if not daily, basis? I've gone a number of times to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and I went to the one here in Detroit as well, the Detroit area. And the one in Washington, D.C. in particular is particularly difficult because as you walk through the halls, it's very difficult to keep your composure. And there's some nagging questions that come to mind at the end of your whole experience there, which is quite remarkable when you see how cruel human beings can be. There are testimonies on the video screen of individuals that have survived the Holocaust. And there is one poignant testimony that I never forgot. There was one lady, she survived the concentration camps. And she's telling the story of one day in the concentration camp as she's behind the barbed wire, an SS truck comes speeding through the center of the camp. And as this SS truck is speeding, out of the back falls a child, a Jewish child. The soldier stops the car, gets out, grabs the child, and swinging that child like a rag doll, slams him against the back of the truck and throws the child into the back. And the lady, stammering with tears in her eyes, she says, and that's when I stopped believing in God. That's when I stopped believing in God. These are questions that are challenging to answer, and I'm not going to be so pretentious here this morning to say that I'm going to answer these questions in a 30-minute presentation. But there are very intelligent people out there that are claiming that events like the Holocaust or the genocide in Rwanda are evidence to God's non-existence. And here is a quote from the former Israeli Supreme Court Justice, Ham Kum, and he says, I would say in his name that the Holocaust is final conclusive proof that there can be no God. If there were a God, he would not be a just and merciful God, but a cruel and unjust God, a God of inequity, not a God who does not slumber or sleep and watches over his people, over all to tribute to God cruelty, injustice, and inequity. We, if I may say so, should do him the favor of denying his existence. The Holocaust, to this individual, is final proof that God cannot exist, because if God did exist, being loving and all-powerful, he would have certainly come down from his throne and intervened. Certainly in the, in the case of innocent children, 
What purpose does it play? And a logical and reasonable question that people can ask is, look, the great controversy sounds nice, and we can say that there are arguments in the great controversy, but what purpose does children's suffering play in the arguments of the great controversy? And I'll be honest with you, I really cannot have an answer when I study Scripture to this question. And here is an individual, Harold Kushner. He believed in God. He was a theist. And he had a son that had a rare genetic disease called progeria. His son would never grow beyond three feet tall, never have hair on his head or body. It hyper-accelerates the aging process. I don't know if you've seen these pictures of children that look like they're 90 or 95 years old. That's exactly what happened to his son. And they die at the age of 11, 12, or 13. And as his father lays his son in the grave, his whole theology comes crashing down around him. Because he believed in two tenets that are found in Scripture. Omnipotence, in other words, God can do anything. He has the power to intervene in every situation. And the other powerful tenet, attribute of God, is that he's a God of love. He is the very definition of love. So not only does God have the ability to intervene, He wants to intervene because He is a loving God and hates suffering. And so here, Harold Kushner is left with a conundrum. Does he believe in an all-powerful God that has the desire to intervene? And these two were at intention as he's laying his son in the grave, and this is what he chose. He said, look, I choose to believe in a loving God but not an all-powerful God. In other words, God cares. He cares deeply. But even God cannot intervene in certain situations. His hands are tied. He doesn't have all of the power. This is the conclusion that Harold Kushner came to. David Hume Ask this question in a similar way. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. Is God able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? In summary, if God is perfectly benevolent, loving, and also omnipotent or almighty, why is there any evil in the world? Why does he permit it? Now, if you will, just for a moment... Think about the nature of omnipotence. Omnipotence means that God can do anything, but even omnipotence has certain limitations. There are things that even God cannot do. For instance, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Uh, Augustine says this, We do not, wrote Augustine in the city of God, lessen God's power when we say that he cannot die or be deceived. This kind of inability, when removed, would make God less powerful than he is. God is rightly called omnipotent, even though he's unable to die or be deceived. It is precisely because he's omnipotent that for him some things are impossible. So fundamentally, within the nature of omnipotence, there are inherent limitations in order for him to be all-powerful. Let's talk a little bit about love. Love 
has certain properties. Once you take away these properties, it ceases to be love. And some very bright philosophical individuals like to ask these types of questions. Can God make a triangle with four sides? If you make a triangle with four sides, it by nature ceases to be a triangle. Can God make a circle with a square edge? A circle with a square edge is no longer a circle. Now, I could care less about these questions, but here's an important question. Can God make a love without choice? Can God make a love without choice? Inherent within the nature of love, there has to be free moral will. There has to be choice. That's what makes love so powerful. If someone goes to another individual and takes out a gun and says, look, you're going to be my wife, that's not love, friends. That's anything but love. You have gone against one of the fundamental tenets of what makes love, love. And what makes it so beautiful are two individuals voluntarily of their own moral choice choosing to be in a love relationship. That's what makes love, love. And so when you add these two together, omnipotence and love, you see that there are certain inherent limitations within the nature of God once He chooses to create individuals with the capacity to love Him back. In other words, they have the right to walk away. And that's exactly what happened in the beginning. Now, I'm not saying today that God being omnipotent and loving means that there will be evil, but it definitely leads to the conclusion that evil is a possibility. Ravi Zacharias, who's a Christian apologist, was giving a lecture at one of our secular universities. He goes all over the world, and he's done lectures at Princeton, Yale, Harvard, from a theistic standpoint of view. And at the end of his lecture, he got up to answer some questions. And a gentleman stood up with some tenacity and challenged Dr. Zacharias and said, Dr. Zacharias, how can you believe in God when there is so much evil in this world? Dr. Zacharias said, look, could you remain standing while I ask you some questions? You've asked me, how can I believe in God when there's so much evil in this world? If there's evil, there must be a good. Am I right? And the man said, yes, you're right. If there's good and evil, there must be an objective standard, a moral law that defines what is good and evil. Am I right? The man said, yes, you're right. So if there is an objective standard called a moral law that determines what is good and evil, there must be a lawgiver. Am I right? And the man stood there and said, what then am I asking? You see, whenever you say that there is, I can't believe in God when there's so much evil in this world, you are fundamentally assuming the existence of God, logically and philosophically speaking. Because without God, there is moral, no moral law. Without no moral law, there is no definition of good and evil. And some atheists have been asked the question, look, is there evil? And they say, no, 
Because they know once they say there's evil, they will have to assume that God exists. One atheist was asked, look, if I placed a child in front of you and killed the child, would that be evil? And the man said, I would not like it, but it wouldn't be evil. And the person said, look, there's something within your nature that is crying out to you saying, this is not right. That's why you're saying, I would not like it. When we go through this dialogue, it's important for us to recognize that within all of us, there are certain things in our world when we read the news, when we look at the headlines, when we see some of the atrocities and devastation that are on this planet, that we, within our nature, it cries out and says, this is not right. This is wrong. This is evil. This shouldn't be happening. And that, I believe, leads us to the conclusion that the existence of evil and the existence of a loving, omnipotent God are not incompatible realities. Now, this does not answer all of our questions. And when you look at the book of Job, Job's asking a lot of questions. And you will notice that in Job chapter 38, going back to our study guide, God finally answers. But it's not an answer that you would suspect. Job chapter 38, verse 3, fill it out in your study guide. How does God answer Job's question regarding suffering? He says, I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, if you look through Job chapter 38, you will see that there are 64 consecutive questions in rapid succession. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I loosed Orion's band or let go of Pleiades? He goes on and on and on and on and on to which Job answers, look, come to think of it, there are a lot of things in life that I do not understand, yet I accept. And the implication in the book of Job is God is saying to Job, look, there's a lot of questions in regards to suffering that you're just going to have to trust me. That's the answer in the book of Job. What, what I have revealed about my nature, my character, that God being a God of love, there's plenty of evidences for that reality. You're going to have to trust me with the things that you do not understand. There's a lot of things in life that I don't understand. I don't understand how my Toyota Prius works. I understand very little about any car for that matter. But I still choose to get in that car every single day and drive it. Right? I don't understand how the internet works. I don't understand how I can talk into a block of aluminum with a glass plate on the front and talk to someone in South Africa. But I still use the phone. God's point is simply this. There are plenty of things in life that you do not understand, yet you accept. And God is saying to Job, look, children suffering, 
your own children being lost. All of these things, genocide, the Holocaust, these are tough questions. And the book of Job has no direct answer. Job is never given God's response. God is simply implying, trust me. When you go to the end of the story, this is quite remarkable. Job chapter 42, verse 12 through 13, fill it out in your study guide. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. This is the end of the story. The beginning of the story, Job has everything. He loses everything. So at the end of the story, he is restored everything that he has lost. And what God is saying is, look, you know the beginning of the story. You know that in the middle of the story, there's going to be lots of questions in regards to suffering that you will not have all of the answers to. But he says, hold on. Hold on. I promise you, I'm going to give you the end of the story. I'm going to restore to you everything that you've lost plus more. Hang on. Hold on. And in the same way, Eden lost, Eden restored. We know the end of the story. Amen? By the grace of God. And when we get to heaven, I believe that God will take back the curtain and we will have Every single answer that we did not have in the present, here and now. God is saying, trust me. Hold on. I'm going to give you enough evidence on which to base your faith. But that's what makes faith, faith. He never removes the possibility of doubt. This quote from the book of Education, I want to close with, not until he... I want to add, we stand in the light of eternity. Will he see all things clearly? God says, trust me, because when you're standing on the sea of glass in heaven and you look back on this experience, you'll be able to see it in a new light in which the curtain is removed. And God says, I promise you, I will give you every answer to your question. Amen. Praise God. Let's stand together as we prepare to close here this morning. Let's bow our heads. Every head bowed and eyes closed. I want to make a simple appeal here today. Perhaps there's someone here that has experienced loss in their life. Perhaps you personally have gone through some suffering And you have some logical questions for God. Not different than Job. And you're saying, Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? And today you want to say, Lord, I don't understand, but help me to trust you. I believe, help my other unbelief. And you want to say, Lord, please. Help me to hang on. Help me to trust. Help me to believe it. If you want to say that, I want to invite you to just slip your hand up here this morning in the quietness of your own heart. God bless you, friend. You say, Lord, help me to trust you. Praise God.
My last appeal is this. You want to be there when Jesus comes, but you're not sure if you were to die today that you'd be saved. And you want to have the assurance. You can walk out of this room today with that assurance. You want to say, Lord, please, I want to have the assurance of salvation. Please take my heart, for I can't give it. I want to accept you as my Savior. I want to invite you to come forward for a special prayer here this morning. God bless you, friend. I want to say, Lord, come into my heart today. I want to accept you as my Savior. Please save me by your grace. Is there someone here today that wants to say that? This is between you and the Lord. And you want to say, Lord, please save me by your grace. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Is there someone here today that wants to make that profession before the Lord and say, Lord, God bless you, Bernie. God bless you. Amen. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a loving God, that you are a merciful God, that you are an all-powerful God. Lord, we recognize today that there are people that are going through immense trials and persecution, suffering that we can only imagine. We thank you for the promise that one day you will give us the answers. We pray that you would help us in the meantime to never let go, to trust you, to believe in the invisible, to believe in a God of love, a God that is long-suffering. Help us in the valleys, in those moments that we're tempted to falter, to lead on the everlasting arms. We praise you for being our God and our Savior, the author and the finisher of our faith. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.